Are you ready to study the scripture? Okay, get your Bible out, and if you use your smartphone, turn on your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, and uh, turn in your Bible to 1 John 4, and we're going to get started in our message series called DTR. Last week, uh, we began this series, and we talked about what Jesus thinks of relationships, we, we kind of identified all that he was articulating in the Sermon on the Mount and how so much of it is about relational uh, dynamics between people. And, and so DTR stands for define the relationship. And uh, it's what happens when a relationship comes to a really important point. And uh, what we're going to do is we're asking, how does God define our relationships? How does God define the relationships that we have in our lives? And today, we're going to look at the relationship in marriage. We're going to look at covenant marriage as in, in the way that God defines it in the Scripture. And so uh, we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 4. Um, You know, let's pray over it and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for the word that is so revelatory to our lives. It gives us insight and it gives us wisdom and it gives us grace. We pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds, change us, transform us as we study it together. Help us to know you better and help us to follow you in a greater way in our marriages, in our relationships in general. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I I have a lot of kids in my family. I have five kids. And I don't know what it is about having kids in Austin. Uh, so many kids, uh, whenever, wherever we go, it's kind of a circus, you know? People look at us like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you have all, and, and then when I tell them I have five kids, they kind of look at me like, wow, you look way too young to have five kids. And I always say, thank you. And, and then I say, I feel really old, though. And, uh, and there is a, there's a thing about having all these kids, all these relationships in the house. Each relationship you have in a home exponentially increases the number of interactions with the group of the people who are in the home. And so when you have seven people living in your house, it's a lot of interaction between people that you can't, it's hard to navigate. It is, it is crazy. We need, we need help with somebody to clean it. We need, we need um, sometimes we need counseling. Sometimes we need somebody to help us to figure out how to work with each other. And so sometimes when people ask me, they say, man, you must really love kids to have so many. <laughs> I'm like, um, no, I, I, I just pretty much love my wife a lot. <laughs> I, don't really like, I don't really like kids that much. I just... But kids are a blessing from the Lord, and they do teach us about ourselves. But there's one thing that I really, I really have um, kind of come to a, a determination that my home and my family has to revolve around the love that my wife and I have. That the marriage is the center of this family life. Now, there are all kinds of homes and all kinds of families that are represented here in the room. Some of you are just at the very beginning and you're tr- trying to raise little kids. And you got little kids and you got poopy diapers everywhere and you got all, it seems like they're up awake at night and you're trying to figure out how just to, how to have time alone. I know that my wife has not really gone to the restroom by herself for 16 years. There's somebody outside the door every time. Hey, mom. It's a crazy experience, but 
I want to encourage you there's hope. <laughs> the day will come when you will have some freedom. Some of you are empty nesters, and some of you are so happy because all the kids are gone and they're doing their thing. Some of you are really sad. Some of you are uh, challenged by this process of, is there meaning for my life after children? Because all the effort and energy that's gone into it, and now you're looking at your spouse and you're thinking, is, do we know each other? And, um, and that's, that can be really challenging. Some of you are really, you've, you've experienced brokenness in your lives in the past. Broken marriages, you've been through a divorce. Uh, You've struggled, and I want to just encourage you that that past does not have to define you today. That even while I'm talking about marriage, I want you to hear it not through the lens of guilt or condemnation, but through the lens of drawing a bloodline right here today on everything that's happened. Hear it through the, through the lens of grace and hear it for what is in the future. And I want to encourage all of you who are single and looking Look carefully. <laughs> Choose wisely. Some of you are single and you're not looking because it's been such a hard journey. Now, here's what I want to say to all of the different types of people that are, that are listening today. I want to encourage you. Would you be willing to participate in the family of God in each of these talks? Would you be willing to engage for the sake of somebody else who's part of this family? Because I do believe that when we define this family of believers together as one chapel, what it's going to do is it helps define how God wants a relationship with his people and how we should relate to others. When this group of people learns how to love each other in a way that's powerful and strong and intimate, then the Bible says that the world really figures out that we're his disciples. And so would you, would you be willing to listen closely, even though it's, maybe I'm not talking about something that is exactly um, applying to you and your situation where you are right now, but knowing that other people here really need it and that you're going to embrace it and you're going to listen in a way that allows God to teach you something that you may need to know that you didn't know? Are you willing to do that? All right, 1 John 4, 7, here's what it says. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. You should underline that. Whoever does not love, the question would be, whoever does not love who? No, whoever does not love one another. He, see, how he starts, see how he starts the passage? Let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves who? Who loves one another has been born of God and knows God. You see, this is the, the demonstration that you know God is the fact that you, your love pours out to another. And not only that, but we learn how to love people by how God loves us. So this, verse 9 says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent us his son and his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God. We didn't love him first, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. If you're, if you're taking little notes here, let me just provide a couple of ideas for you. Number one, we begin with God. 
when we start talking about love. We have, to, we have to help. We have to begin with God when we talk about love. Love begins with him. This verse says that God is love. He doesn't dispense it. He doesn't hand it out. He actually is the essence of love. It's part of his nature and character and who he is. God is love. And then we learn about how to love others by the way he loves us. And we realize that others learn about God by the way we love them. Did you catch that last one? Other people learn about God by the way we love them. That's what the verse 12 is about. That nobody's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. He appears to people. He uh, shows himself. He reveals himself to people through our love. Now, I, I think this has to be our starting point for understanding <clears throat> marriage. Because I think it's very difficult to love another person without understanding the love of God. It's very hard to enter an unconditional love relationship, a relationship where I'm going to make some vows. I'm going to say some vows to love this person. And if you think about the vows that we say in marriage, what is it, what is it? to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others. That's what we say when we get married. What we're saying is, if, if you're rich or poor, if we go through financial hardship or we got plenty of money, I'm going to love you. If you're sick, I'm still going to love you. If we're going to have good times, I'm going to love you. If it's going to be bad times, I'm still going to love you. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to attach myself to anybody else. I'm only going to love you. Now, I want you to notice when you say those vows, they are not conditional. You're making them. And so this is the problem for so many people when they try to get married, and they get married without, without God's love revelation. And, and here's the problem. Sometimes I'll get mar- you will get married, and we'll want that other person to meet all of our needs. We'll get married, and we'll want that person to kind of fulfill all of our desires. We'll get married, and we'll, we'll want to say, you complete me. Only God can complete you. Another person can compliment you. Another person can show you a little bit about God, but no one can complete you but God himself. And so we, we, have to, we have to settle that. I love this little phrase. My wife is an amazing person. She has hardly any flaws. Tiny ones. And she's a wonderful Amy, but she's a really bad Jesus. And sometimes we try to get from our spouse what we're supposed to get from Jesus. We have to get what Jesus wants to give us in the demonstration of his love and security and confidence, and that's what creates real covenant marriage. C.S. Lewis wrote about this a little bit. He wrote about being in love and about love in general. He wrote, being in love is a good thing, C.S. Lewis said. But it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of your whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. 
If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. (laughs) Who could bear to live in the excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? Do you remember being in love? This is not C.S. Lewis now. Do you remember being in love? You couldn't sleep. You couldn't, it's all that feeling. How could you, what he's saying is, how could you want to even live in that for any length of time? It would be exhausting. Here's back to C.S. Lewis. But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love. Is not merely a feeling, it is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced in Christian marriages by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other. As you love yourself, even when you do not like yourself, they can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep that promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. This is a fantastic writing that helps us put our heads around what marriage is really about. My wife, I remember when I just was falling in love with her and I was consumed. I was obsessed. We had dated a little bit in college and then I had left and she spent her last year in college and we'd broken up. And she'd kind of put me at arm's length and so I was, I, I, I was brokenhearted, and I was strategizing on how I could win her back. I was obsessed. I was staying awake at night. I was thinking about all kinds of ways. What could I do? How could I, how could I make this work? How, what kind of things can I do to, to get her back into my life? Because I think I really messed up here. I think I've lost the best thing. I was unwilling to live without her. I was miserable. I was whipped. (laughs) I mean, I did crazy stuff. I wrote in journals. I wrote for 30 days. I wrote a journal to her that I didn't share with her until later at an extravagant dinner where I shared my love with her. I wrote songs. I was was sleepless. I was not eating right. It was just a weird experience. But I want to say to you, baby... That life is so much better today than it was in those days. Even though the, that when, you, when you said yes to me, when you, when you came back into my life and my heart fluttered, the, the value of knowing a person deeply and intimately and, and knowing and having confidence that you love me, even knowing how uh, weak I am, is the best thing in my life. 
I started crying in the first service and it surprised me. So I was really committed not to cry in this service. Well, thanks. Still whipped. I, yeah. <laughs> I'll write a song afterwards. So, but let me, I just, I, there's, there's something so deep about the love that I have with Amy now. So settled, so confident, so enduring. This is what we need in our lives. It's what God wants to give us, but it's, it, it's elusive. It's hard for people. It has to do with a covenant. It has to do with an idea that, um, that gives us something beyond just the feeling of love. It goes beyond that into something more, much more practical, something more habitual, something that requires God's work and God's grace in us to lay our lives down for another person. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Now, all the way over at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. If you think about it, the Bible has a marriage at the front and a marriage at the back. We've got the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. You've got the marriage of Adam and Eve in the front. The Bible has so much to say about marriage. And so I want you to read this passage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. If he's alone, he's not as good. He is, in a way, in need. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord had God had formed out of the ground all the animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. This is an interesting passage, how God includes Adam in his work and then says, there's, no, there's nobody that really fits you. There's nobody that really, I, I have a new idea for you and I want you to see it. So he shows them all creation and he, you know, he starts naming the animals. Really creative at first, hippopotamus, right? Rhinoceros, it's incredible, giraffe. And finally, as it, the day goes on, red bird, blue bird. He loses it. But God lets him name them, and he, he lets him name them, and he go, goes through the whole thing. And then notice what happens in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and enclosed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, woman. For she was stolen out of man, or sorry, taken out of man. That is, the, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Everybody say one flesh. One flesh. Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God designed something here. He designed a marriage where these people would be one. He didn't take a bone out of Adam's foot and make Eve out of it. The danger being Adam would think that he was over her. He didn't take a bone out of his skull 
and in some way talk about the, the, the way that they, um, the, the way that you think or the way that she thinks is, is really so much better than yours. What he did was he took a rib out of his side and he, and he made her out of him. But he took this thing from his side in, and, and I think it speaks to us of equality. This person, this oneness, this connectedness. He put two people together and he designed them to be together. And so I want you to see that marriage is a sacred relationship, first of all. It's a holy thing. It's something that, that, is, that is about God's holiness. It's in you. It's sacred. It's not something that just is determined by the government. God's purpose for marriage is actually to make us holy, not just happy. Hopefully it is happy and holy, but, but the point is there's something sacred about it. It's character building in and of ourselves. As we enter into it, it is a a sacred pursuit. It requires reverence. It is not a piece of paper from the justice of the peace. That is not what God is talking about when he's talking about a one flesh relationship. That's not what he's talking about when there's a covenant relationship that the scripture begins to describe. It's fine. I mean, it's fine. You understand the government defines marriage the way it wants to and then provides tax advantages. And I'm grateful for those tax advantages. But when we're talking about a Christian marriage, what we're talking about is a man and a woman who are, have covenanted together for the, for the rest of their lives to love one another and to become an illustration and a picture of God's great love for the world. So marriage is a covenant relationship. God's Design for marriage is a lifetime vow of love and faithfulness. A covenant, actually the word, actually means to cut. There's blood involved. In marriage, there's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. No way around it. But there is a, I think we can see it as a cutting away of our, of our flesh. There was, there was a cost to making a covenant with someone. And so we're going to talk about the elements of of covenant today. So most of us can't really think in terms of covenant because our minds are so absorbed in the idea of contracts. So a contract, a contract is something that we're very familiar with in American uh, culture, and we protect our rights and limit our responsibilities. That's how it works. We protect our rights and limit our responsibilities. So we're thinking, we're just strategizing, we're thinking, how can we limit the responsibilities we have to bring to the table, and how can we make sure that we protect everything that we want to keep? We're in the midst of this process, uh, you know, when we're renting buildings and we're dealing with contracts and we're talking about how we're going to use this facility and, and the school's got a certain interest and we've got interest. We come to the table and we want certain things and so we, 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 we try to wrestle it through. Look, marriage doesn't work with you keeping your rights. Marriage works under the terms of a covenant, which is we give up our rights and we pick up our responsibilities. We give our rights and we pick up responsibilities. We increase our responsibilities. And so let's talk about the rights we give up. What are the rights we give up? When we get married, we give up some rights. Here they are. The first one would be priority. I want you to think about you being the priority of your life. I know that it's so funny. Single people are... um, you know, they're, they're all over the map in terms of what they want from marriage. Um, but often they, um, 
they do see it as a means to sort of themselves becoming um, more fulfilled in their lives and, and having um, this freedom that they don't perceive themselves having now. But in reality, it, it, it is kind of the opposite. There is a, you, you, you are able to make yourself a priority anytime you want to when you're a single person. But when you get married, what you do is you decide, I'm going to make somebody else a priority in my life. And I give up making my, my own decisions, and I'm going to make them a priority. I'm going to make this relationship a priority. I'm not going to let my kids be the priority. Hey, 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 hey. This is really a hard thing for our culture right now, is our kids become the priority when they come along, and then the relationship's not a priority anymore, and then you end up with them going away to college and there's nothing left. The kids become the center of so many marriages. They become the priorities, and I don't, this isn't correct. I challenge every young couple, when their baby's first born, find somebody, uh, uh, grandma and grandpa, if you're not living by families, somebody else, some older couple who loves babies but doesn't want to deal with them all the time, but, but give your babies to somebody and go away for a night or two at some point within the first year of having those babies. You know why? Because it settles something. It settles that this marriage is more important than that screaming child. You may get the picture that I don't love my children. I love them deeply. But I just, I just know that, that the marriage, my relationship with my wife, if I want those kids to be healthy as they grow up, I've got to invest in this marriage first. And so that becomes the priority. And if you think about the way it works with God, we think about Jesus, what he said in Matthew 6, look at it on the screen. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. There's a picture that marriage presents of the gospel. And the gospel is, I come to God and I can't keep all my priorities. I have to yield them for his priorities. Marriage is a picture of the gospel message in that way, the illustration of God and his relationship with us. I also give up, number two, I give up ownership. I give up sole ownership because I give you the right to co-own and co-administrate everything I have. Everything I have begins to belong to my wife. My body, my money, my calendar, my home, it's not my, now get this, men, gentlemen, it is not yours to bless her with. You give that up because you're one. One flesh means you give up sole proprietorship, sole ownership. Everything you have becomes hers. Now, I know there's all these prenuptial agreements in our society. There's all these concerns about divorce, and we split them all up. And, and I'm, I'm not that big of a fan of having separate checkbooks, but some people do it for the purpose of organization, and that's fine with me, as long as you have the principle settled. But I don't, I don't really like it because it, when, sometimes when you have separate checkbooks and you go through this thing, the drifting and the distance that is inevitable in a marriage when kids get busy and consuming and you have to come back together, I just think everything in your life should be pointed towards you've given up. You've, you've given up this right to have your own thing and you are now co-administrating and co-owning everything together. You are one. This is what 1 Corinthians 7, 4 says. It says, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And all the men said, (laughs) 
In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. And unfortunately, it's all the men say again, amen. So this, this, is, um, this, is, this is an interesting passage, but you, you, it, it's illustrating the point that you're giving up yourself and your ownership of yourself. And the secret, listen to me, the secret to this principle is not you demanding it from the other person. That will never work. Turn to your neighbor and say, that'll never work. Go ahead. Just still. Don't you hate it when pastors do that? But I like to do it just because it needles you. The secret to this principle is not what you, that you can demand it. The secret is, it's in what you give away. The secret to this principle is in what you give away. That's how it works. You decide to give it away. Well, what if he doesn't decide to give his part away? I don't know. I thought you made some vows at the beginning that said you were going to love in this way. Well, Pastor Ross, that seems really difficult. Well, yeah, marriage is a big decision. Yeah, it's sacred and it's holy. There's something that we have to recapture, right? And the third thing is privacy. Privacy. <laughs> I give up I give up my right to privacy. I give up my right to keep any secrets. Does it, mean that I, does it mean that I go home and tell her everything that happened at work today? I mean, every single detail? No. <laughs> I know, some wives are like, yes, it does. He needs to come home and tell me. In fact, she, her, her, our code, she, she gives me about 30 minutes to decompress, and then it'll come, go something like this. So... Anything exciting happen at work today? And I'll be like, no. I know what she wants is she wants me to talk about it. And I'm, I'm either, I may or may not be ready to talk about it, but I need to talk about it because my right to privacy. But, but sometimes there's things that happen that I will, um, that I will not want to poison her heart with. Somebody's been mean to me. You know, somebody wrote me a nasty letter on Tuesday, Tuesday mail. Right, I say it on Sunday, they write it on Monday, I get it on Tuesday. <laughs> okay, never mind. You shouldn't do that. Don't even, don't even do that. Um, and so I'll, so I'll have to wrestle with it, and sometimes that will cause, that will cause a poison in her heart. So the, per, the person who tells everything, says everything they know, is often called a fool. All right. So what we're talking about, though, is I have nothing blocking. She can know anything she wants to know at the end of the day. I don't just, and, and ladies, you have to be careful of this too because you come home and you have a lot of more words left than the men do. You haven't used up all your words and so you, 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 you want to keep using the words and he just can't take any more of it. And so sometimes you need to pause and let him recover and then engage. And, and so, so this privacy thing though, it's very interesting. Um, John fifteen fifteen is what Jesus said to us. Look what he says. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. What we're saying here is in marriage and in a covenant relationship, we give up the right to hide anything and to keep any secrets and that we're open and honest and completely vulnerable. The truth is the secret. The secret to being loved deeply is them knowing some of your failures, knowing everything and still loving you. Well, but Pastor Ross, if I tell her everything, she's not going to love me anymore. There is a process by which you must 
go through that and, 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 and unfold. And I would encourage, if your marriage is in trouble, you need, maybe you need somebody else to engage with you and help you walk through the process of becoming more vulnerable. But the, the vulnerability is where the love grows deep, where it makes it priceless, where it makes it covenantal. The next thing we got to look at is we got to look at uh, responsibilities we pick up, all right? So let's look at responsibilities we pick up, but we're going to look at we're going to look at Ephesians 5 first, all right? So look at this. Look at Ephesians 5. It says <clears throat> uh, I'll go all the way back there. If you've got your Bible, go all the way back there because I want you to read it with me. We're hurrying now because we're coming to the end. Ephesians 5. All right. Here it is. Out of respect for Christ, I'm going to read it from the Message Bible, actually, so you can um, kind of have a new spin on it. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Yes, be courteously reverent to one another. The NIV says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving and not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out in her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they've already won in marriage. No one abuses his own body. No, he feeds it and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, Paul says. And I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture. Everybody say picture. A picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. The first thing that I think we look at when we're looking at the, the responsibilities we pick up is we have to love unconditionally. Christ loves us unconditionally. He loves us. He laid down his life. He surrendered his life to us. That's what Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Marriage is not about creating conditions for love. It is about loving the person beyond the conditions. When you say those vows, when you say those vows for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, sickness and health, and forsaking all others, what you're saying is, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to make this decision, and you may try to wreck it by being stupid. You may be unfaithful to me, or you may be a, a, a person that, that is sick all the time, or there, there may be really bad uh, experiences in our future financially, but I'm going to love you through them. 
Sometimes pastors will go when they're in premarital counseling and they'll talk about some of these things and they'll, they'll stop and they'll say, okay, let's come up with some other conditions for your love for each other. Do you want to do that? Let's, let's come up with some conditions that you'll only love the person if they do a cert, some certain things. Okay, you ready? Let's, let's go. Is it, um, you know, you, how much money do you need? How much, what do you, what do you and, and they'll kind of look at the pastor and go, what are you saying? That's not how this works. Because they know deep down the prenuptial agreements and all this stuff, that, that is not a covenant marriage. That is not the marriage. That, when, and now you're looking at me saying, Pastor Ross, come on, get with the times. This is the way it is in our day. I think we have to recapture. I think we have to recapture the truth of God's word. Hey, if, the, if we live in a divorce culture, isn't it up to the people of God to live as a family in a way that loves each other enough for people to see that and get a model of how family and how marriage and how life is supposed to work? It can only happen here. It can only happen here. Now, I don't want you to hear this through the guilt of your past. Hear it through what I'm talking about in our own lives for our future. Number two, we have to honor respectfully. That's what, that's what this picture is. We have to honor respectfully. Honor means to put value on it, to set apart as special. That's what the, the word actually means, to set apart as special. We need to restore this value to our families. For, now listen, for centuries, women have been bullied mistreated, abused. For centuries in many cultures, women have been abused. In Christian culture, they are loved deeply. They are honored. I know, I know, there's some of you guys, you know, you're bigger and you can dominate her with your, uh, with either your imposing uh, body or you're imposing arguments. Sometimes it's the other direction. Sometimes it's her and she imposes herself on you. We have to, we have to rediscover this. Look what, look what 1 Peter 3, 5 through 7 says. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Check this out. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Oh, really? How's that? Hey, I'm really glad you asked. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him master. Hey, hey, Abraham was no, uh, he, he was no real catch. <laughs> I know, I know, you think Abraham, listen, if you read the first several chapters where Abraham's story is unfolding, he was a liar. He was always scared of everything. He lied about Sarah. He put her in compromising situations. This was not good, and yet Sarah chose not to highlight those things about him, not to call him liar, but to call him Lord. There's something here about honoring him that she had in her. Look what Peter does. He doesn't just talk about women in this way. He talks about husbands. Husbands, in the same way. Wait, in what way? In the same way that women are treating the the husbands, or, yeah, the husbands are supposed to, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Considerate. Clean yourself up. 
Don't leave stuff all over the house. Don't be a slob. Don't expect her to clean up after you. You ought to be considerate as you, boy, it's getting quiet in this church. Are you guys okay? You guys all right? Okay. Come back next week. It'll be a friendlier message next week. Consider it as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I want you to unpack this scripture just a second. The weaker partner uh, indicating often not having this kind of strength, not having the kind of uh, uh, body that the man has. There is a weaker partner element. But notice what Peter is saying. You're supposed to undo that weaker partner business. You're supposed to be considerate of her, and then you're supposed to treat her as an equal, as an heir with you, as an heir with you of the gracious gift of life, even though she may be smaller than you, even though you may be able to beat up on her. what What Peter is saying, husbands, you be considerate of your wives. You treat them like gold. You treat them like diamonds. You respect them. You take care of them. You be considerate of them. This is how you're supposed to treat them. I know, I know some of the women are like, well, I could be more submissive if my, wife, well, my husband would treat me like that. It's really hard to be submissive, I understand. I'm just going to say this because I think it needs to be said because these are tricky passages. Every group of people, every team needs a leader. Submission is about recognizing a leader in your family. And if you don't have a husband, you're a single mom, the leader in your family is Jesus, and you have to submit to him. And I want you to notice that there is, um, that submission is not just a thing for women, it is also for men, because the third point is submit mutually. Submit mutually. Everybody skips the first verse of this passage, verse 21, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's, it's not something you can demand from your wife, and it's not something you can demand from your husband. Submission is something I, I, I've talked about recently because, and I've talked about it in this, in this um, fashion. Submission's kind of like a yield sign. You know what you do with a yield sign? Out of all of the road signs... Yield is the hardest one. You know why? Because it requires interpretation. Stop is very clear. Stop. Green light, easy. Yield is a hard sign to deal with because it requires interpretation. But yielding means you're willing to yield to someone else to take the lead, to go first. When I was deciding to come to Austin, I was really struggling and I, I, I felt like I had a lot to lose, and I was trying to figure out if God wanted me to come here and plant a church. And I remember my wife, who was totally convinced. <laughs> she was totally convinced we were supposed to come. Like she was, I mean, she prayed about it. It was a done deal in her mind. But I hadn't been able to get to a, a finish. And in, in reality, I didn't get open to coming until she became open to staying in Colorado. Isn't that what happened, babe? 
You had really prayed it through, and, and, and she finally settled, I can stay, it's no big deal. And then God somehow awakened me out of my stupor, and, uh, and I began to really understand it. And I remember I was wrestling with the question one day, and I called my dad on the phone, and I said, Dad, I just, I'm, I just don't know exactly what to do. I, I, I just feel like there's so many risks, and I can't figure out all the pieces, and I'm just afraid to do it in reality. And he said these very wise words to me. He said, sometimes, son, or he first he asked, he said, what does Amy think? You know, since we're one, what she thinks is really important. Now, it's really hard for her to submit to me when I have a different opinion, a different point of view. But, but when she submits like that, it opens my heart up to what Jesus wants. And of course, I can never demand it from her. She offers it freely. But he said, what does Amy think? And I said, well, she's totally convinced. She's like, it's, it's, it's a done deal. She thinks we're supposed to go. And he said, son, sometimes your spouse is God's voice to you. Sometimes your spouse is the voice of the Father saying, it's okay, you can trust me. Because you're one, because you're connected, because there is a, a, a oneness, you can listen to that voice and it can calm you and settle you. I don't know the state of your marriage, I don't know what you're wrestling with, but some of you don't want to hear your husband say anything to you. You certainly don't want to submit to him because somehow he's not worthy or whatever. Or some of you men are so hard on your wives, you're so sloppy that, you, that, 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 that she, it's really hard on her. Listen, we need to discover honor and submission in a biblical fashion, and we need, to, we need to rediscover unconditional love for covenant marriage. This is how it's designed. This is how it works. And I know you're saying, I don't know if I can do it. Well, that's why Jesus came. I don't know if I want to do it. Well, absolutely. Sometimes we don't want to do the thing that will actually create the healing for us. Sometimes we don't want to enter into the hard work of something that will really pay off in the end. But let me tell you this. Jesus and his love and his strength, each of these things, I've read these passages, I've read the scriptures that are associated with them. It's the same way God treats us. He doesn't force you to submit to him. Do you realize that? You gotta do it willingly. There's no way Christianity works by being forced. You can't be forced to be a Christian. Nobody can make you a Christian. You have to surrender to him. But if you will, God will begin to work on your heart. He will begin to shape you and form you and make you into the person that he knows you can be because you have potential, because you have the love of the Father in you. Close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's pray about this. Would you let the Holy Spirit speak to you? Maybe you're there with your spouse and you're realizing some of these things are hitting too close to home and you're, you're gonna have to wrestle them through, but really, this is a moment for you to decide. I'm gonna commit my life. I'm gonna commit my life to, to God and to my spouse. Maybe you're single here today and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds like an incredible journey. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe this is your moment to say, God, I'm committed to wait for the right person. I'm committed to wait 
I'm committed to, to be patient and submit to you instead of to my own desires. Maybe you're here this morning and you've failed in your marriage and there's a, a sense in which you're, you're feeling the loss and the pain as I talk about it. You too can come to the foot of the cross and let Jesus heal you. Let Jesus heal your, your, your heart and your soul and your mind. Let him touch you and restore you. Give you new hope. That that past wouldn't be the identifying factor for you. But you'd look forward towards doing what Jesus wants you to do. Letting him own your life. Submitting to him. Basking in his unconditional love and being willing to just surrender everything. And honor him in your life. Honor him and him alone. No matter where you're coming from today, I want to say a commitment prayer together. And I want us to say it out loud. And I want us to mean it. I want you to repeat these words after me all across the auditorium. All of us together. Let's, let's really make a commitment. Let's make a commitment to transform the relationships in our marriages and in our families. Everybody repeat after me. Just say, Heavenly Father. Come on, everybody, say it out loud. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who showed us the way by laying down his life. I lay down my life today. Forgive me, Lord, for doing my own thing, going my own way, insisting on my own way. Forgive me for my failures and my foolishness. I choose you. I follow you. I receive your love. I receive your grace. I receive your strength. And I receive your power. Thank you, Jesus. Just say that to him. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us and showing us what that looks like. Thank you that you've made marriage into a picture of this great love that God has for us. Thank you for the calling on our church to, to become a covenant people and to become a group of people that will live out the covenant in front of others and, and will attract them to you. Father, I pray that in, in the name of Jesus, you would help every person who prayed this prayer of commitment today, that you would heal them, that you would free them, that you would release them from their past, that you would empower them and engage them for their future, for the love that you have for them, the love that they can receive from you and the love that they can share with another. We thank you for this and we ask your blessing on our marriages today. In Jesus' name, amen.